Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Terry Backow. Dr. Backow is a widely known expert in cognitive behavioral therapy, an evidence-based therapy approach. A Brown and Boston University graduate, she has authored several peer-reviewed papers based on her research and sees clients in her private practice on the Upper West Side. She is a media contributor and has been featured in Women's Health and Shape magazines, Scary Mommy, and various blogs and podcasts. Dr. Backhouse supervises trainees in psychology and psychiatry at NYU and the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She's the author of Goodbye Anxiety, a guided journal for overcoming worry. In the episode, Dr. Backow shares practical strategies for managing stress, anxiety, overwhelm, uncertainty, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Backow. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to connect with somebody who lives in New York City. We were just talking since that was my favorite place in the world, and I lived there for 12 years and hope to go back someday. But I don't know why it's something in the world. I just randomly find people for this podcast who live in New York City. It's almost like I gravitate towards them. So <laughs> maybe it's the universe giving me a sign. <laughs> Got there, the data bus. Yes, there are a lot. That's probably more like it. There's a lot of you in New York City, for sure. Uh, but I would love if you could start off by telling us what initially led you to become a therapist and to write your book, Goodbye Anxiety, A Guided Journal for Overcoming Worry. Yes. So um, I have always wanted to be a therapist. I've always wanted to be one. And I was really fortunate to go to a graduate program 
the special diet and anxiety appropriate to the Boston University, but I worked at the clinic that really focused on the experience of anxiety and the treatment for it. What I discovered there is that there is a therapy approach that's particularly effective for anxiety that we call cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT. CBT is sort of the gold standard when it comes to treating worry, trauma, OCD, panic attacks, phobias, things like that. And so I got really great training, training like a graduate school around how to utilize CBT to treat anxiety disorders in all ages. And then when the pandemic happened, um, an opportunity came up for me to write this book. And I think it was really the perfect moment since at the time we were seeing everyone so stressed out, especially teenagers and young adults, really stressed out. So I kind of just, myself being so stressed out, jumped at the moment and decided to um, go ahead and write this book, which is actually specifically targeted towards teenagers and young adults, although I believe anyone can, can read it. And um, my thought was to find a way to get young people a resource that they could access without having to go see a therapist. No, I think therapy is fantastic. I think everyone should see one. But, you know, sometimes therapy is expensive, but sometimes it's hard to find a provider. And so if you pick up a self-help book, it's a really private, stigma-free way to learn some really actionable skills. And... A really accessible way. And um, what I think is really nice about my book is that it's skeptical. So teenagers can pick it up for themselves, or parents or caregivers or grandparents can pick it up for them and kind of just hand it to them. And I think the pandemic was just a really nice moment to provide this resource given sort of the mental health crisis work. That's, I love how you're making it accessible for everyone. Because, like you said, therapy is probably the gold standard if you could connect with a therapist, but not everybody can afford that. Um, And so if a parent is listening to this and connecting with your message, then to especially know that this book could be targeted towards teenagers, that's great to know for themselves as well, but also for teenagers. Um, And I, I know for myself, I've never really experienced anxiety, fortunately, but the pandemic, especially the onset of it, I felt for the first time in my life, probably just a lot of stress and anxiety, especially about the unknown. And I'm sure everybody did. Um, I'm actually reading a novel right now that was written, it was published in 2022. So I'm assuming the author wrote it during the pandemic. And they're actually writing about these characters living through a pandemic in the future, but pulling on a lot of what happened in our experience in the pandemic. And as I'm reading it, I'm even feeling myself kind of tense up at the memories of when we didn't know what was happening and how long we were going to be in lockdown and was there going to be food available and should we get cash out of the bank? I mean, there were so many unknowns. Mm -hmm. Do you find, even before the pandemic, do you find that there's more stress and anxiety in the world now than, let's say, 
20, 30, 50 years ago, or is it just talked about more now? Yes, the rates of anxiety and depression, even pre-pandemic, have been steadily increasing. Really? Why? (laughs) Why is that? I have some thoughts. But first of all, the group that's most affected are individuals between the ages of 18 and 25. What we're seeing is rates going up from about maybe, let's say, 10% of Americans reporting anxiety and depression symptoms to now about 40%. So we're really seeing, especially um, with the pandemic higher rates, but even before that, the rates were increasing. And the reason that I think that is, is that we live in a culture of perfection. There is so much pressure, I believe, on all of us, especially young people, to be perfect, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, and to be similar to everyone else. And I think that even as we celebrate difference and become more affirming and accepting towards difference, there's still a lot of pressure to conform. And I think there is also in America, especially, a culture of overwork, which is you've got to be busy. You have to be busy, busy, busy to um, have work. And I think we've all bought into this idea of that you kind of almost have to earn the keep, that you have to be busy to be cool or worth it or valuable. And, and I think the pandemic really sort of tore down the curtain of that um, everyone became really isolated and depressed, to be honest, and also really anxious. And that, I think, drove up the rates even further. Mm. I saw this meme the other day on some social media platform, but it was just basically making fun of the idea that people will kind of now compete for how busy they are. So it was this joke of somebody was saying, well, I was so busy today, I didn't even have time to eat lunch. And then the other person said, oh, really? I had to skip lunch and dinner. And so it's it's funny how overworking has almost become so normalized and it's a badge of honor, even in some careers of bragging how you skipped work because you were, or you skipped lunch because you were so busy. It's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yes, we did not allow ourselves to slow down. We don't give ourselves that permission that there is a competitive aspect to it, I believe, where we're comparing kind of horror stories about our stress, which is not healthy. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, myself included, we turn to devices when we're trying to slow down and we're trying to decompress at the end of the day, but then... If you hop onto social media when you're done with work, then there's probably a whole different set of anxiety inducers that come from seeing friends posting vacations or seemingly perfect families. And so then it goes back to that idea of perfectionism that you mentioned and this comparison trap. So even when you're decompressing and trying to de-stress at the end of the day, you may still be causing anxiety through social media. Do you see that being the case? Of course. I mean, I'm not um, against social media. I love my Instagram account, but it really has exacerbated the social comparison. And what we're seeing is other people's highlight reels. We're seeing that the real lives, but sort of the highlights of their lives. People are not posting the tantrum or the food poisoning 
like a place that would be made for six hours. Instead of getting sort of the palm trees and the, you know, fancy outfit, and that's just really a burden that is not realistic. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't think it's affecting you, if you consciously go into it, even if you have the thought, oh, I know their life isn't perfect, it's still kind of subconsciously probably getting to you if you see picture after picture of perfection. Yeah, and I think we have that pressure to kind of project that and to almost live it. And it's unrealistic, you know, our expectations of ourselves are not realistic. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, the terms stress and anxiety, how are they related and how are they different? Yeah, yeah. So first, stress is specific and temporary and proportional. Whereas anxiety is more ongoing, more chronic, and anxiety tends to be many times out of proportion, more overreacting. We are excessively worrying. So stress is, you know, stress can be good. Like if you move, that could be a positive source of stress. Whereas anxiety is, um, it tends to be negative, to be honest. And the way that they're similar is you could be anxious about your stress. <laughs> you okay. could also be stressed about your anxiety. But they are different things and that stress is specific and temporary. It goes away, it comes and goes. Okay, and then chronic stress then is the type that doesn't go away, that's just going over time. Yeah, so a person could have chronic stress without being anxious. Okay. Anxiety is really more of a psychiatric phenomenon, whereas stress is something every single person in the world experiences. And too much stress leads to something called burnout. And burnout could be the outcome of chronic stress. And that can lead to um, some really bad mental health outcomes, including anxiety. And unfortunately, many of us these days are burned out. Right. So when do stress and anxiety become cause for con- concern? Is it like what you said, if you have chronic stress and you feel burned out, that's cause for concern? Or, you know, when do you identify that you need help with either? Exactly. So... The, the two indicators, one would be the amount of distress, not stress, distress, how distressing is it to you? How upset are you by what's happening? As well as interfering, meaning how much is the stress and anxiety interfering in your life? So if it begins messing up your life, you know, causing you to cancel plans or lose focus or lose sleep, if it's creating insomnia and muscle tension, and headaches and things like that, then it's time to seek help, to seek professional help. Got it. And then anxiety, if you're experiencing anxiety, you said that that almost is always chronic. So should you just always seek professional help if you feel that you're anxious all the time? So there's different levels of severity of anxiety. You could have an anxiety disorder and function Perfectly well, many of us do. But if it begins to kind of get in the way of your life and your functioning, you know, maybe you're not functioning so well at work, maybe your relationships start to be impacted, then it's a good time to speak to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hear the term manage stress a lot. <laughs> can, 
can you really manage your stress? And if so, what are some ways you can, or what are some ways that people try to manage stress that actually don't typically work well? So biostress can be managed to a degree, you know, we can engage in problem solving, we can seek help, we can sort of try to be creative. Um, a lot of times stress is something you just have to get through, like you know, the first day of school, or when you start a new job, or sometimes stress you just have to get through it and wait for it to pass. But people um, frequently don't really feel patient, uh, understandably, and they just want the stress to go away. So they may do things like self-medicate, maybe with drugs or alcohol, or try to completely numb their emotions, avoid emotions. What we find is when we try to avoid negative emotion, we actually make them worse. We experience mm. rebound effects. Now, if you try to suppress all of your anxiety and stress, it can um, actually pop back up. Mm-hmm. So... This is where, again, talking to a professional would be good because you could get some really curated, smart advice about what are the better strategies to use and how could you experience this negative emotion, manage them more effectively so they don't take over your life. I see a lot of kind of Band-Aid fixes touted on the internet of, you know, take a bubble bath or get a massage. And I mean, those things are great, obviously, but the majority of us don't have time for a massage and a bubble bath every day. Does that kind of irk you that those are often suggested as manage your stress through these ways that maybe aren't as helpful? Yeah, so that would be a short-term solution, not a long-term one. In the short term, you get some relief. I certainly recommend massages and self-care. The problem with self-care, though, is that it can be expensive, and sometimes we don't have time for it. We don't have time to go get a massage, and we don't maybe have the money to spend $100. So in that case, I recommend subtraction, taking things off of your plate rather than adding them to your plate. Okay. So, and does that get into the whole idea of boundaries then? Saying no to things and setting better boundaries, is that one of your favorite kind of stress-busting solutions, if you will? Exactly, exactly. So I encourage my client to really flirt with a word that has two letters, which is no. <laughs> Just say no. Say no more often. Say it more freely. Don't worry about disappointing others. A lot of times we don't say no because we're terrified. We're going to disappoint them. We're going to let them down or hurt their feelings, or that, that the person would be upset with us. When in reality, we're overstating the degree that the other person cares. Quite mm-hmm. frequently, they really don't care that much, and they're not going to be that upset. And there could be good ways to set boundaries, you know, you could set them with warmth. You could say, I'm so sorry, I can't make it tonight. Why do we get together next week? Mm-hmm. Is then one of the best ways to de-stress just to kind of create more space in your life by saying no and setting boundaries. And so you just have more time to kind of just be and not be go, go, go all the time. Yes. I think the stress management and time management are really similar concepts. And a lot of happiness or unhappiness is related to have a control over the degree over the amount of time that we have and how we spend it. 
Uh-huh. So if you started to feel that loss of control over your time, it's going to make you really stressed out. So in order to reclaim your time, you have to say no. And you do have to step back with and delegate the subtract. Mm, that's a really good point. I've never thought about that as feeling a loss of control over your time as being something that's very stressful. And that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the most common misconceptions that circulate about stress? Maybe we already covered a couple, but are there others? Yeah. So I think a really common misconception about stress that we experience is the notion that we are the only ones who are stressed out. A lot of times when you're stressed, you feel like I'm the only one. Everyone else has it all together. Everyone else is like organized and and functioning, and I am a hot mess. And that's just not the case. Everyone is stressed out. No one can escape it. We are all, it's universal. Everyone is stressed. Some people maybe have just developed better coping mechanisms for their stress. I think some people certainly have, but many of us, we're just not communicating it. We're not sharing it with other people. We are concealing it and hiding it and trying to really put on a brave face. Uh And so you can't always see other people's threats, but they do have it. Right. I know, speaking of this book I'm reading, for me, just one thing that has been game-changing is reading physical books rather than in my free time looking at my phone or even watching TV or a movie, just disconnecting from devices. And I originally had this goal at the beginning of the year because I wanted to see if I could sleep better if I didn't look at my phone right before I went to bed. And so it's taken me several months to get into this routine. But now every single night, I set my phone alarm, I turn it off, I put it next to my bed, and I read from a physical book, and then I'm usually getting books I really enjoy, so I want to read them as much as possible. So it's overflowed into the daytime as well when I finish work. I read from a physical book, and it's crazy just how much lighter I feel just not being on social media as much. I mean, I still use it for my job, and I am on it still quite a bit, but it's, I don't know, I've just been blown away by this one change and how that has worked for me so well in terms of managing stress. And I guess when I'm thinking about what you're saying, you're saying you also need to carve out time for yourself and say no to things. And so in order to carve out time to read, I guess I'm also saying no to other things. And I don't know, just this one change. It's incredible how one change can make such a big impact. That makes so much sense, and I know how you feel. I really do. Yeah. And I think there's something, too, about the physical book, not having it on a Kindle. I go to the library, and I I mean, it's so old school, right? (laughs) I'm like the only one requesting physical books from the library, but there's something about it. I'm addicted. I just love it so much. It's great. I definitely think that small changes can be really impactful. Right. What about in terms of anxiety? What are some common misconceptions that circulate about anxiety? Yeah, so I think the number one common misconception about anxiety is that if you have it, that there's something wrong with you. That there's stigma that you are maybe to blame when really it could not be further from the truth. Anxiety is genetic. It's not, it doesn't come from parenting. It doesn't come from mistakes that people have made. It's really quite often outside of your control. And I think the stigma that we have surrounding mental illness is really misplaced. Huh. 
I was going to ask if it runs in families. So it typically is genetic anxiety? Yes, it is highly genetic. Run the family. If you have a family member with anxiety, most likely you might have some of it yourself. Oh, okay. And does family member mean anybody, a sibling, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, or is it typically a parent? Anybody. Interesting. If you run the family, it gets passed down from generation to generation. It could even be an aunt or uncle or great-grandparent, anyone. Oh, Okay. That is, that's fascinating. Do we know, do we know why that is? Or are there studies that suggest how that happens? But anxiety is neurobiological. It's neurochemical. And now it really affects the neurotransmitters in our bodies, which is why psychiatric medication that antidepressants can, can work really well. Mm. Okay. So I guess to destigmatize anxiety, just start thinking of it as hair color or something. You got your physical features. That would be lovely. I wish yeah. everyone could see it that way. Yeah, it's just something I inherited. It's genetic. And then now that I know that this is something I will deal with, how can I get the proper support and help? Exactly. Okay. And I'm sure then that when you take away the stigma and the shame and the guilt and you get help faster, then I'm sure you can have a much more fruitful life because you're not spending years not getting help because you're ashamed about it. A hundred percent. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. What are some of your favorite practical strategies for managing anxiety? Yeah, so the first is quite simple. It involves this really slow, deep relaxation breathing, which is simply inhaling through your mouth, pausing, and exhaling. And what this does is it allows more oxygen to get to your body, to get to all areas of your body, and it instantly soothes your nervous system. It activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which calms the body. So I always recommend just some slow breaths, and you can do this anytime, anywhere. It doesn't cost anything. It's really quite effective. So that's number one. And then second, I really recommend self-talk. But self-talk is just talking to yourself, really. I mean, you could talk to yourself out loud, but um, most people do it in their head. And the idea is to give yourself a pop talk to provide encouragement to yourself to use a cheerleading or coping statement, something like, I've got this. This is rough, but I can handle it. Mm. Something really short and powerful, almost like an affirmation. 
ano, that could be, that could go a long way. Mm-hmm. And then I also recommend reframing. What reframing means is adopting a perspective shift about the situation. So a lot of our anxiety comes from our interpretation. It's something we catastrophize. We jump to conclusions. We think the worst is going to happen or someone hates us or someone's never going to talk to us again. And we get really emotional. So I encourage clients to ask themselves, what would you tell a friend in the same situation? And what evidence do you have for this worry? If you really take a step back and examine it, you don't have a lot of evidence. Or maybe the evidence is from the internet or something that someone told you. Or maybe somebody's facial expression, which is ambiguous. Right? So I encourage people to think of thoughts as thoughts rather than facts. And this reframing, you know, really changing your interpretation by examining the evidence. Got it. I imagine then as a parent, if you have a very anxious child, do you just teach them these coping strategies? So I think that parents could do a lot for anxious children, but they should not teach them strategies because parents, I mean, I am a psychologist and a parent, but many parents are not psychologists. So I don't think parents should put pressure on themselves to fix or cure their kids. What they can do is validate their emotion. You know, if a child comes to you and says, I'm, I'm freaking out, it would be really helpful if the parent could say, I'm so Sorry to hear that. That must be so hard. I really feel for you. I have felt anxious in the past. I know what that's like to really validate the emotion. And at the same time, this could be a little tricky. You want to validate the emotion, but not encourage avoidance. You don't want to allow your child to escape or avoid the situation. You know, because avoidance can lead to a bigger problem. So if someone... Um, let's say it's afraid to go to summer camp or to a sleepover or to school, letting them stay home is kind of like the worst thing you could do mm-hmm. in that situation. What you do want to do is be supportive and then encourage them to do it and even go with them. Like, I will take you to the bus stop. I will go with you on the first day to partner with them and encourage them to do it and to also praise bravery when you see your child really being brave to really call them out for a say, great job, you did it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so affirm the feelings and then encourage kind of moving on with life and not skipping out on things due to the, the anxious feelings. Correct. It involves a blend of empathy, but also firmness. You know, putting your foot down and like, you're not staying home today, you're going to school. Right. You You mentioned kind of having that mantra and doing that self-talk. So is that something you would encourage parents to introduce or try the reframing with the child? Anything to help them kind of proceed within the action? Yes, certainly. I mean, you can ask your child what I call Socratic questions. You know, questions like, do we have any proof that your friend is mad at you? And you can certainly try that. Um, and I just don't want pre- parents to put so much pressure on themselves. Right, so I try right. to be really careful about it's not your job 
to cure your child's anxiety disorder, but it certainly can hurt to ask some of these Socratic questions. Right. Okay. And obviously, again, if you can seek out a professional, then that could be very supportive, not only for the child, but of the parent as well, because I'm sure then the parent knows the child's getting professional help and they don't feel like they have to do it all. Exactly. When you maybe just feel overwhelmed, but you don't feel as if you're suffering from full-fledged anxiety, I think those same strategies could work, correct? Like the deep breathing, the self-talk. Yes, yes, all of those would work. And in addition, what I recommend is problem solving. It seems quite simple, but it's not. I mean, it is simple. I just think it's an underrated strategy, problem solving. What I mean by that is break it down to smaller components, delegate, and I'll make a plan, make a schedule. Like recently, I discovered that I need to have 36 hours of continuing education to renew my license. And that's a lot of hours. So what I've decided to do is one hour a week for 36 weeks uh, to make it yeah. less of a moment, you know, to try to break it down and to make a plan to be really calm and achieving. Once you have a plan in place, and sometimes the plan can involve asking for help, mm-hmm. give a task away. Right. Have a spouse go pick up the dry cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. No, but that's such a good point that 36 hours seems like a lot, but one hour a week seems very manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of break things down and put them into as small as chunks as you possibly can. What about journaling? Can journaling be a powerful coping strategy? Absolutely. So what journaling does is it provides conduction. It gives you a chance to but to express your feelings, to get them out of your mind and onto paper. And this is backed by research. Research shows that putting words on an experience quiets the area of the brain responsible for emotion regulation, which we call the amygdala. So, for example, if you have an accident, um, maybe a car accident or some traumatic event, and you talk about it right after, it will help you process the experience far better. And if you don't have someone to talk to, writing provides a really private, stigma-free, low-cost way to vent and to express your feelings. And this could be massively helpful. Mm. It's kind of, I don't know if you've heard this before, I'm sure you have, but this idea of if you feel like you want to write uh, angry email or something to maybe just write it out or type it out, but then don't send it for a while and you got all of that out and then you can type the more kind of logical, calm email in response and it just feels really good to get out that first one, but don't hit send. <laughs> yes, and it can help you kind of integrate the experience to make sense of it. Right, Yeah. What about, we talked about the pandemic, and that was just a period of uncertainty, probably one of the biggest periods of uncertainty most of us have dealt with, especially as a collective world, going through it all together. But what are some tools you have for coping with uncertainty? So, first of all, uncertainty can be really uncomfortable, especially for folks with anxiety. We really don't like it. We really prefer to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, when we can expect to know 
but um, light doesn't work that way. Light is uncertain. And I think the key thing to remember is not knowing what's going to happen. It's not the same as something bad happening. Uncertainty is not equivalent to doom. A lot of times when we, um, when we have an uncertain moment, our imaginations run wild. We imagine and we make predictions about how it's going to turn out. But, you know, the outcome of the situation might not be bad. Quite often, things work out just fine. I mean, a few days ago, I was really feeling a little bit uncertain about um, one of my kids starting a new school. And so a few days, I was um, pretty worked up about it. And then he went to his first day, and it was fine. It was completely <laughs> fine. And it even went really well. So I think that one of the best ways to cope with uncertainty is, number one, to not jump to conclusions, to keep an open mind, and to try to sit with it. Uh-huh. It's When you were saying that, it's making me think that that uncertain feeling is negative. So then I guess we kind of maybe attach that negative feeling of the uncertainty to whatever it is we're uncertain about, we kind of just assume it will be a negative result because we have this negative feeling. So it's kind of hard to make that leap, right? When you're feeling uncertain to, again, have that self-talk and reassure yourself that the outcome may be positive, even if you're feeling uncertain. Yeah, yeah. I think when we're worried, it doesn't occur to us that it almost always works out. Right, yeah. Another good reminder. (laughs) All of these are good reminders, I think, for all of us, whether we're struggling with anxiety or uncertainty or overwhelm. um, So many great reminders. I'd love if you could share for us what your book is about and how you set it up. Yeah. So my book is called Goodbye Anxiety, a guided journal for overcoming worry. And it is really a worry management book for young people, although I think older folks might benefit as well. And it has, it certainly has writing prompts in it, but that's not the entire book. The rest of the book is skills-based. These skills are things that psychological science has shown to be effective for anxiety or worry management. So a lot of the tools in the book come from cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapy approaches that are really great for anxiety. So I talk about that and that about the reframing that we spoke about and the breathing and the problem solving. But what I think is great about my book is that it is not overwhelming. It's short, it's fun to look at, it's comfortable, you can pick it up, you can flip through it, you can dip into it at any time. I have some music and movie references in the book. I think there's humor in it as well. So it's meant to be disarming and accessible to young people, and especially stigma-free. So um, I, I think it, I'm really proud of it. Awesome. Well, I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. I'm sure people will want to check it out. And I think it's great that it's not an overwhelming book, right? Because I think a lot of the self-help books out there that are hundreds of pages of all these scientific terms then end up becoming more overwhelming when you're trying to beat anxiety. It doesn't seem like that really adds up. (laughs) 
absolutely I do not allow the people just don't have time to read. They don't. Right. And so it could be overwhelming to see a book with so many pages. I think, oh my gosh, I gotta read this thing. But this is, it has shorts and it has some graphics. It's really not intimidating at all. Awesome. Yeah, I know. Those listening, you can't see what I see, but I'm seeing the book firsthand here and it looks awesome the way you've set it up. And I'm a very visual person. Like I said, I like paper books and products and journals. And so um, I think I think that's an awesome resource you've created. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Great question. So first, I think the key thing to remember, in my opinion, is that mental health is health. Mental health is health. And we need to be kind to ourselves. We need to be compassionate towards ourselves. Research has shown that self-compassionate people, people that are kind to themselves, not hard on themselves, are more resilient, better able to cope with stress, and better able to manage adversity. And being kind to yourself, it's not indulgent. It's good science. It's strategic. And being kind to yourself simply means cutting yourself some slack and getting help when you need it and seeking support from others and not being so critical of yourself. Criticism, criticism does not motivate behavior nearly as much as self-compassion. Wow. Kindness to yourself is strategic. It's not indulgent. I, I'm going to yeah. take that away. I love that so much because I think, and I'm sure others will also, I mean, that's, that's such a great reminder. You mentioned your book. I'll put a link to your book in the show notes, but where else can listeners follow and find you? So um, if you are on social media, you can follow me on Instagram. And my handle is at Dr. Terry Becker, at Dr. Terry Becker. And my website is Dr. Again, drterrybecker.com. And the book can be found on Amazon. It can be found in stores in Barnes & Noble. It could also be found via independent booksellers. Oh, awesome. Great. Well, I will put links to your book, your Instagram and your website. And thank you so much again for being here today, Terry. I know that I gathered a lot of really helpful tools and reminders, and I look forward to following you and staying connected off air. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.